Well, good morning and welcome to Stonebridge. We're glad you chose to worship with us this morning. My name is Steve Duffy. I'm one of the elders here. First and foremost, just want to uh, draw your attention to a couple things. Uh, we have a strong desire to get you connected here at Stonebridge Church. And whether you're new or you're newer or you've been coming for years, no matter what that is, we would love for you to share some information with us so that we can help you get further connected. We have you know, our Sunday morning gather, gathering here to worship. We have life groups, uh, which are small groups that typically meet at homes. And then we also have uh, service teams, which are, again, ways to get connected. And these three big areas of Stonebridge ministry are really important and vital for your growth and your next steps with Jesus. So you can do a couple things, um, especially if you're new. You can text WELCOME to that number that's right up there, and we'll get uh, in touch with you that way. And another way is the cards in the seat, backs in front of you, seat back in front of you has a um, word on here that says WELCOME. This is another place where you can fill out your information, and you can put that in the offering plate as it goes by, or you can turn it in at the uh, WELCOME desk out front there. And then on the other side of that, we count it an honor and a privilege every week to pray for you. So you'll notice on the back side of that same card, there, it says prayer. And so whether you have a, a need that you'd like to lift up to the Lord or you have a praise you'd like to praise God for and thank him for, any of that, if you would write that on there, and you can also put that in the offering plate. We have several groups throughout the week that uh, count it a privilege, again, to pray with you, to, to join you in prayer, to praise God with you for the things that are happening in life, and we just want to acknowledge him with you in that. Uh, just have a quick note, too, uh, like a transition update, some information there. So if you're newer to Stonebridge, you may have heard that we do have a new lead pastor, Brandon Lever Levering, and you've no doubt it, have already seen him, maybe, and he's already been up here preaching. Um, but you also have noticed Pastor Randy's still been around, and you might be wondering, well, what's going on with that? Um, in a good way. Uh, but actually, just let you know and remind most of you that uh, several months ago, even beyond a year ago, um, the leadership and the staff, we intentionally planned this overlap period. So once Brandon came on board and as Randy's uh, um, transitioning out, there is this time where both are present, and that's intentional. And um, Randy and Brandon have been partnering uh, together in order to help Brandon get acquainted with the staff, with the ministry around Stonebridge Church, with relationships. Um, and so he's going to continue to do that. And a really officially, July 14th is Brandon's kind of, uh, I would say, um, not day one, but officially he's, he'll be installed here in a, during our service. Um, so that'll kind of be his official takeover as lead pastor. Pastor Randy will stay around with us, and his last preaching weekend will be August 18th. And so you're going to see both here on site and present for a while. Um, and again, that's built, and it, it built into the way we went about the transition um, so just uh, any questions you have on that, you can approach any of the staff or the elders. We'd be glad to talk with you more about that. Um, but would you go ahead and bow your head with me and pray as, uh, as we, before we take the offering here? Well, Lord, thank you for this day you've given us. Thank you for your presence, the gift of you in our life through Jesus Christ, and we're grateful for that. Uh, when we think about the theme of freedom in the past week, um, we first and foremost think about the freedom we have in Christ the freedom from the power of sin, the freedom from the penalty of sin, all because of you and what you've done on our behalf. And all we can do is proclaim in, a, in, 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 in our hearts and aloud here today, thank you. And Lord, we think about the freedom that we, uh, the freedoms that we acknowledged in the past week too on July 4th. You know, we're privileged to be in a country, Lord, where we don't have uh, the oppression and the um, uh, the things that would hinder us from gathering here even today freely. And we, Lord, we just want to acknowledge that and give you thanks for that. We don't want to take that for granted. We also want to acknowledge our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have that freedom. 
yet they still gather joyfully in obedience and in worship unto you. And so thank you, Lord, for your provision for them as well. Lord, we praise you for the baptisms and child dedications that happened last week. We just ask that by your spirit, you would continue to guide all those that were involved, parents and children alike, to take their next steps with you. Lord, we ask that in this coming Saturday, when we have the serve day, that you would gather more servants, more workers uh, from our congregation here to serve the ASAC Heart of Iowa, um, serve the women there and the workers. Lord, we ask that through our hands and our feet, our actions, that they would see Christ in us. We also ask that these would be opportunities to plant seeds and grow relationships so that we may have gospel opportunities. Lord, thank you for that connection to the community. I pray that we would be good stewards of that. Lord, as we take the offering here today, uh, remind us, God, that you desire for us to be cheerful givers, to not to give without hesitation, to give because we're compelled to give because you first loved us. Let that be our motivation to joyfully give today. And Lord, we just ask for a blessing for Pastor Keith as he comes up here and proclaims your word. Lord, empower him by your spirit to proclaim it boldly, with clarity and conviction. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Robin. I'm one of the pastors. And as many of you know, one year ago, we launched a five-year initiative to serve 404 families in the 52404 zip code. Now, that area of our city is one of the most under-resourced areas, and we feel called to help serve them and bless them. And many of you have already been involved through serving at Hoover, Van Buren Elementary Schools, through serving at Young Parents Network, through ASAC, Heart of Iowa, Saturate, all of those, and we say thank you for serving. And we have another opportunity coming up on Saturday, July 20th. And on that day, we hope to take an army of volunteers and bless the women and the children at ASAC, Heart of Iowa. It's a substance abuse treatment center where we can come alongside and help them as they seek to find new life and come to know Christ in a meaningful way. So from nine to noon, we'll be painting, we'll be decorating, we'll be helping with minor repairs, cleaning, and offering a kids club for the children that live there. Now, we've already begun relationships at Heart of Iowa through our budgeting and our cooking classes. So this is just another way to serve them by helping to improve the facilities where they live. So how can you be involved? Well, we still need 30 people to help, and we'd love to have you join us. This could be a great opportunity as a family, as a life group, to come and serve the women and the children at Heart of Iowa. You can sign up at the welcome desk or go online. And I encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity where we can come alongside people and help them take their next step with Jesus. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. Good morning. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm happy to walk us through Mark chapter 6 this morning. So I'm going to ask you to turn there. In your Bibles, please. We are in a series in the book of Mark where we're talking about defining Jesus. Now, there is no shortage of 
other people trying to define Jesus. I'm sure you know this already, right? We live in a culture that is constantly trying to redefine Jesus and has been for some time, trying to make Jesus into either just like a nice historical figure or somebody who is a good example um, or, or just completely throwing out most of what Jesus said and did and uh, just seeing it as like, hey, if you want to believe that, that's fine. Don't impose that on someone else. And uh, we just live in a culture that really misunderstands Jesus. The thing we have to get is that we don't get to set the terms by which Jesus is defined. Jesus does. Scripture gets to set the definition of who Christ is. We don't, we don't get to do that. So you might hear someone say, well, to me, Jesus is, and you can very, very uh, smartly answer them, well, like, it doesn't matter who he is to you. What matters is who he is to the world. Amen? That's what matters. Not your personal interpretation of Jesus, but objectively, who does God's Word say Jesus is? And if you were to poll people in our, in our own country here, you would find that some people believe that Jesus uses His power to grant physical blessings and material wealth, right? There's a certain subset of people who will say, if you'll just trust in Jesus and you'll sow a seed of faith and, and give money to a church or give money to uh, a televangelist, then you will sow a seed and God will bless you richly with financial prosperity and health and wisdom and wealth, right? That's, that's one group. You might find a group of people who believe that Jesus uses His power to overthrow societal structures on behalf of the underprivileged, that they look at the Gospels and all they see is Jesus was the uh, sociological rebel who was all about social justice. You see, some people who believe that Jesus uses His power to make a nation great and safe, right? There's a, there are groups of people who would say that Jesus exerts His power to make America great again, right? Is that, is that why Jesus uses His power? Many people believe Jesus uses His power to grant salvation and then a manageable and enjoyable life. Now, maybe you fall in one of these camps. If you do, I hope this morning that Scripture can correct what might be a little bit errant in your understanding of, of who Jesus is and how He uses His power. But let's submit ourselves to the Word. I'm going to ask you to look at chapter 6, verse 45, and if you'll stand with me, we're going to read a short excerpt from chapter 6. Immediately, He made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. <clears throat> but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid." And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would not have hardened hearts this morning. We pray, 
Father, that you would soften our hearts to be able to receive your word. Father, wherever, wherever we're at and whatever misunderstanding of, of how Jesus has used his power and what you're trying to accomplish, whatever misunderstanding we fall in, we pray that you would correct it for our good and for your glory. Father, may you get all the glory this morning as hearts are changed and as, as believers are restored to you, Lord, from a week of, of having wandering hearts and wandering minds. May this morning we commune with your Holy Spirit. Listen to your word. Respond in obedience. Lord, we love you and praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. This morning in Mark chapter 6, we're going to look at how Jesus actually uses his power. How does Jesus display his power? First of all, we're going to see that Jesus displays his power in judgment. And this doesn't strike many people as a popular theme, right? But it does come up in Scripture. Jesus does judge people, and it is appropriate that Jesus would judge unbelief. As Jesus appears in his hometown on the scene, we see this, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own house. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, I want to see you that his primary ministry, as Jesus shows up, and this will happen in Mark chapter 6, a few points, and I want to show you the verses what happened so that you understand where I'm going with this. Jesus' primary action in his ministry was teaching. I know many people, we look at the life of Christ, and yes, he is the Messiah who was sent to bind up the brokenhearted and heal the sick and set the captives free, but his primary uh, exercise in his mission and in his ministry was teaching. Verse 2 says, on the Sabbath, he began to teach. Verse 6 says, and he went among, among the villages teaching. Verse 12, as he sends the disciples out, it says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Verse 34 says, and he began to teach many things. Jesus was a teacher. Jesus showed up in synagogues and started correcting the misunderstanding that much of Israel had with the law. See, that was the big issue. The big issue was Jesus showed up to correct the understanding of who God was. God himself comes to say, I think you've misunderstood where I was going with all of this. And so as he's in the synagogue in his hometown, he starts teaching. And people were astonished, right? People were really impressed by his acumen in teaching. Jesus must have been a pretty good orator because like, they, they were like, wow, this is, this is pretty amazing. But What ended up happening is what he said became overshadowed by their lack of understanding for who he actually was. As he's teaching, they're looking around and they're like, wait a minute, is this Mary's son? Don't don't his sisters hang around here? What's his deal? Why Why is he trying to teach us and correct us as though like he's not, we know who you are. Now, I don't know if you, anybody in here live in the same town that they were born in? Okay, well, that's a decent number of you. Uh, I, I moved so many times. Just, I went to three different grade schools. I went to three different high schools. 
Uh, I was all over the place, so I have no idea what that feels like. But I do know this. Like, when, typically, when you go to your hometown, if you try to put on airs about how great you are, everybody will immediately remind you who you are, right? Don't forget who you are. Or as one of my wife's favorite songs by Ricky Skaggs is, don't get above your raisin, right? So don't, you, be, be careful not to think that, that you're awesome because you've gone off and made something of yourself. And this is kind of what's happening. Jesus shows up with teaching acumen and, and authority, and the people in his hometown are like, dude, we know who you are. Don't you find it interesting that Jesus lived for 30 years before he began his ministry? Why didn't he just start his ministry after when he's 12 years old and Mary and Joseph lose him in the temple? Why didn't he just start? Because that would have awed everyone, right? 13-year-old boy starts like just throwing off all sorts of prophetic utterances and, and fulfillments of messianic prophecy. Don't you think people would have paid attention? Jesus waits until he's 30 years old. And then he goes to his hometown and he's teaching and people are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who are you? And what business do you have telling us how to behave? The unbelief of this, these people was, was so great. Even though he was doing miracles, they took offense at him. The acts of Jesus weren't as offensive as the teaching and authority of Jesus. And the refusal to receive his teaching had an impact on their ability to receive the extent of his power. We see there in, after he says, you know, a prophet has no honor, except uh, a prophet has no honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. Or he, what he basically says is prophets are honored everywhere except with the people who know them. In verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So as he's in this place, it's actually the, the thing that was offensive to people was not that Jesus could have healed people and was going around and healing people and making them well and casting out demons. The thing that was offensive to them was Jesus' teaching. And their offense at Jesus' teaching became a hindrance to them actually seeing what his power could accomplish. Do you understand? And you might be like, man, those people were dense. We have the same problem today. Many people won't experience the power of Jesus because they refuse to submit to the authority of Jesus. Many people will hear the words of Jesus on things like sexual morality, that thou shalt not commit adultery, and in fact, thou shalt not even look on a woman lustfully with your eyes. And when Jesus says that, people go, wait a minute, who does he think he is? Right? When Jesus reminds us that we are called to care for the widow and the orphan, we go, wait a minute, who's, who's Jesus think he is telling us who, how we're supposed to live? We don't have a problem if Jesus wants to bless us with material wealth, do we? But we do have a problem when Jesus shows up and says, this is how I've called you to live, don't we? That's what people have a problem with. People have a problem with the authority of Jesus to command us and to correct us. But this phrase sort of bothers me here. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. There's a misunderstanding in this passage of Scripture that may lead us to think, is Jesus' power hindered by unbelief? Can people's unbelief actually keep Jesus from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish? And there are some who would say, like, yes, like people's, people's free will can totally block what Jesus wants to do. But I would 
I would encourage you to, to look more thoroughly through the Gospels to see that Jesus very clearly says, and in fact, if you were to look at John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 64, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him, in verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So very clearly in the Gospel of John, what we see is God is not inhibited from saving people based on whether or not people are willing to be saved or not. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, God draws us to Him by His own good pleasure, and we respond on the basis of the invitation from God. We don't hinder the power of Jesus by our unbelief, but in fact, Jesus is sovereign over all things, even the unbelief of the people. Now, why, why is this so? And I can provide you with another text that would show us here where it says that he could do no mighty work. That word there or that phrase is the same as in Genesis chapter 19 verse 22. When Lot is called to leave Sodom and Gomorrah because the Lord is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, the angel tells him that we can't do anything. We, God cannot destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until you're safe. Now, does that mean that God's power was hindered by whether or not, like, if Lot would have stayed in Sodom and Gomorrah, would God not have been able to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? No, that's not what it means. What that could not mean there is that God would not allow Himself to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until Lot was safe, because He purposed that Lot should be safe because He had a plan for Lot. In the same way, by, by the texts helping us interpret the text. Jesus is not inhibited by people's lack of belief. Jesus is not inhibited by someone's lack of faith. But in fact, it was in Jesus' plan that this would happen. Israel's disobedience and hard-heartedness was prophesied and ordained by God. Now, let me ask you this. Could not Jesus have revealed Himself to more groups than humble shepherds and heathen magicians, right? Who are the two groups of people who were told of the birth of the Savior specifically? It was the humble shepherds and the heathen magicians. Couldn't God have gone to the Sanhedrin and said, guys, the Messiah is coming, look alive. Couldn't He made the, have made the whole world see the star that would lead them to the birth of the Savior? Couldn't have God done that, yes or no? Could God do that? Yes. So God intentionally hid that plan from a large number of people for some reason. Agreed? Okay. So in fact, we would not say that God's power is inhibited because everybody didn't know, would we? We would say that God was actually accomplishing what He had ordained to accomplish in the Old Testament when He says to the prophet Isaiah, you will go and you will tell them, but they will not hear you. They will not have the ears to hear. They will not have the eyes to see. And that's because I'm doing a greater work. That the unbelief of people and the lack of faith of people is actually woven into God's plan to make His power known. And in fact, to make His power known through judgment. Look at verses 7 through 13. So now Jesus takes his 12 and he sends them out two by two and he gives them authority over demons, unclean spirits. 
He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So he gives them the exact same marching orders, in fact, of the people in Israel who were fleeing Egypt. He says, look, don't take a bunch with you, right? It's, it's interesting. There are some parallels here in Mark chapter 6 especially and in the whole gospel of Mark to what God was doing with the Israelites in the Old Testament. So he says, I'm going to send you out, take a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, take sandals and a tunic. And then he, he sends them and says this, when you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So you're at, you're at the mercy of people hosting you. In verse 11, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This idea of shaking the dust off your feet. The Jews would do this when they would leave a Gentile city because this was the idea of saying like all the uncleanness of this place, these Gentiles that I've been in this place with, now it's off of me, right? So you're taking this Gentile place with you and you're like, now I'm going to get rid of this. I'm, I'm going to shake off the dust from my feet. Now what's interesting about Jesus telling them this is they are going out to the Jews. As he sends his apostles, they are not yet going to the Gentiles. They're first going to the house of God. They're going to Israel. And so as they are sent to Israel, he tells his apostles, if they do not receive you, shake the dust off of your feet. That would have been amazing. Because they would have been thinking, well, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to do that to Gentiles? Are we supposed to do that to our own people? And Jesus says, this is a testimony against them. If you look at the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10, he actually says to his disciples, it would be more tolerable to be Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it would to be this place if they reject me. And so what's happening, the inference here, is that Jesus' power is not just made known if he shows up at a place and everybody just falls down at his feet and worships. Jesus' power is just, just as present in a place where he is rejected as a place where he is accepted. Do you understand that? Because one day, in the fullness of time, one day, the wicked and the unbelieving will be judged and it will be the power of Jesus Christ that accomplishes that. Now, I know that's not popular. But this is the proclamation of the word, that Christ's power is just as manifest in his authority to judge the unbelief of people as it is to heal the sick, to cast out the demon. Christ's power is made known in judgment. So his disciples went out and proclaimed that people should repent. You know, the, the point here that Ben Witherington in a commentary on Mark says, the point here seems in the main to be about not having any more to do with that region and implicit judgment, since this would also mean they would never again hear the good news of the dominion of God. And it's true. If you read through the rest of the book of Mark or the other gospels, the disciples never return to this region. They never return to this area. They never return to this place. So they shake the dust off their feet because these people who should know who God is miss him. They won't accept his teaching. And here's a good point for us. Morally respectable people who reject Christ are judged to a greater degree than the unbelieving heathens. There are people all over our nation this morning who are sitting in churches who, who will not submit their lives to Christ. But they feel like because they go into a church and they sing some songs and they put money in an offering plate 
And they might even pray. And they might even read their Bible. But they don't obey Christ. Their hearts are not submitted to Him. And they think that their profession of faith is what saves them. But morally respectable people who reject the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ will receive a stricter, harsher judgment than the person on the street who has spent their life in drugs and who has no idea of the gospel, and yet when they hear the, reg- the gospel, responds to it fervently. Do you know that? That's terrifying. That means that it's possible to be a morally respectable, righteous person and still miss who Jesus is. To still miss out on his power. Believing that God owes you something because of your religious faithfulness will cause you to reject the actual gospel. When you come to God as though he owes you his power to work on your life to where everything in your life ends up the way that you want it to be, that will actually cause you to reject the gospel because the gospel says that you deserve nothing but wrath but that God in his mercy has sent his son to take your punishment. It's offensive. It's offensive. God will judge unbelief, and in this judgment, he will display his power. In verses 14 through 29, I just want to show you, this is uh, a little bit of an aside. So Jesus sends his disciples out, and they go, and they anoint with oil many who are sick. They heal them. They cast out demons. And as they're doing this, in verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some people were saying, hey, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these powers are at work. And others said he's Elijah, and others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And if you look forward in Mark, at the point where Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? This is exactly who people say. Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say a prophet. Herod was in the camp of thinking that it was resurrected John the Baptist. Now, how dense does someone have to be spiritually to reject that Jesus could possibly be God, but to believe that Jesus is a resurrected John the Baptist? You, you, get, you get the denseness there, yes? So Herod is like, no, this has got to be John the Baptist. He's getting revenge on me. And then it gives us the story behind, okay, how did John the Baptist die? And just very shortly, here's how John the Baptist died. He was in jail. Herod had put him in jail. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, Herod's having a party, and he's got this new marriage because he unlawfully divorced his wife so that he could marry his brother's wife. And uh, so he's having this party, and he's having her daughter dance for a bunch of guys, which is pretty seedy anyway. And he says, hey, I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. What do you want? And uh, she goes to her mom and says, hey, mom, what do we want? And she goes, I know what would be the best gift for this party, John the Baptist's head on a dinner plate. That's sick. And that's exactly what happens. John the Baptist is beheaded, and that's how the party ends. And, and then we launch into this, this next story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. But, but I want to just stop here and ask this question. Where was Jesus' power when John the Baptist was beheaded? Does that bother you? That bothers me. In the midst of a bunch of stories about Jesus' power, we see the guy who was the most faithful 
to knowing who Christ actually was. He was the most in tune, right? Holy Spirit since he was in the womb. So he, he goes before as the forerunner to Jesus Christ, telling the people to repent and believe in the gospel. And the, he knows Jesus, even Jesus' own disciples, as we'll see, don't get who he is. John the Baptist knows. He gets on the scene, faithfully proclaims repentance, gets arrested, and subsequently killed. Now I ask you, does that seem like a very fair deal? Was Jesus powerless to keep this from happening? We'll come back to that. Jesus also shows his power in compassion. When you look at verses 30 through 44, we see the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus continues to display the continuity of his power through examples familiar to Israel. So, Jesus is, they're out in the middle of nowhere here, really, right? The apostles returned to Jesus, and they were telling him, you know, all that had happened. He said, hey, let's go get some rest. And we see this in verses 30 through 33. Hey, let's go get some rest. They went away, verse 32, in a boat to a desolate place, and people saw them. So the people from all these towns run ahead of them, and there are crowds on the shore. So they're being swarmed by crowds. Where Jesus went, the crowds were looking for him. Verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus sees this crowd. And whereas previously we see Jesus in judgment have his followers shake the dust off their feet to the house of Israel, now Jesus sees this group of people who are eager to listen to him. Who are probably the societal castaways. Who are sick, who are infirmed, who are coming out to him to hear the authority of his teaching and, and receive a blessing from him. And so Jesus has compassion on them. And the statement of shepherd here is not just someone who cares for people. The statement that he makes, sheep without a shepherd, that's a, a reference to the, the position that Moses held with Israel in the wilderness. He's more of a military leader, an organizer, a captain. Jesus sees these people and knows that they need leadership. And his first act of compassion, look at verse 34, is to teach them. Jesus is compassionate in teaching them. And I, I want to share this with you. Jesus could have just showed up and been like, hey, wait a minute, these people are not going to listen to me until we, until we meet their physical needs. So let's meet their physical needs first, and then, then, then we have an audience with them. You understand what I'm saying? But this is how we often approach the gospel, like in, in modern Christianity as well. I can't, I can't proclaim anything about, you know, the gospel and, and morality and God's law, and I can't call people to repentance until I meet their physical needs. Well, then Jesus violated that directive. Because Jesus' compassion leads him to tell them the truth about the coming kingdom first, which means that to Jesus, the most compassionate thing that you can do for someone is to be honest with them first. And then you meet their needs. Do you understand? You can do both at the same time. But we live in a culture where even Christians get so sideways on social justice that we think that if we do good things for people, then they will... It's like that, the, the dumbest phrase. I, I hate the phrase like, uh, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Guys, the gospel is words. The gospel is the proclamation of how Christ has entered into humanity and saved them. There is no way to preach the gospel without words. You can live the gospel, 
But you cannot preach the gospel unless you open your mouth and tell them that God himself has entered into history to take our sin and offer us his righteousness. That's the only way that people will know that Jesus calls them to repent. We have to do it. How much do we have to hate people to meet their physical needs and to not find it a priority to share with them the gospel? So that they can live longer and spend eternity in hell? Jesus' first act of compassion is to teach. And there seems to be a desire from this crowd to receive what Jesus has to say. And then Jesus organizes people. I want you to see what, what's happening here. His disciples are so dense that they're not as compassionate as Jesus is, right? They're like, okay, Jesus, it's getting late. Uh, we've had a long day. Can you please send these people away? Like, send them to Chick-fil-A or McDonald's or something. But like, I think they're getting hungry. And so Jesus says, well, why don't you guys give them something to eat? And they said, well, what do you want us to do? Go, go buy like 100 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? So I think there's a little bit of snark in that comment. Jesus is like, well, how about you guys give them something to eat? And they're like, okay, we'll run to the grocery store real quick. There's a fairway right around the corner of the beach, Jesus. Yeah, sure. What do you want us to do? What is it that you want us to do? And so then he says, well, what do you got? What do you have? And they said, well, just five loaves and two fish. And then he commanded everybody, sit down. So Jesus doesn't, Jesus is like, what do you guys got? Five loaves? Okay, everybody sit down. So Jesus starts organizing people in groups by hundreds and by fifties, verse 40. And he takes the five loaves and two fish. He looks up to heaven. He says a blessing, breaks them, gives them to the disciples to set before the people. Now, there's so many people here that you know that not everybody saw how much bread they had. So as this is happening, we often get the idea that how could this many people, 5,000 men, which means there were women and children, so thousands and thousands of people, how would these people see this miracle and not know that, that this was God? The, the greater question is this, like how would all those people even know that that was a miracle? Because all they're doing is receiving as the disciples are passing out as they're in groups of 50 and 100, right? So most people who were there probably had no idea where the bread came from. They just knew that bread was getting passed out. This miracle was for the disciples. This miracle so it was so that they would know. Look, you know, do you realize who you're dealing with here? That Jesus shows up and he has authority to teach these people. And then very clearly, not only has authority to teach these people, he says, we're going to meet their needs, but you're going to be involved in this. We're, we're going to practice some compassion here. But they didn't get it, did they? Jesus' own disciples didn't get it. They observed the power of his compassion, and they were still hesitant to follow his mission. And here's why I say that. Look at verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Now, this is, uh, this is not... If you dig through the text and geographically you're looking at where Jesus is sending them and where they end up, he says go to Bethsaida, but where they end up is in Gennesaret. Okay, and you'll, you'll see that, uh, look at verse 53, when they'd crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. That's not Bethsaida. So the disciples ultimately don't even go where he sends them to go. And if you know that Bethsaida is a Gentile territory, here's what, and there are great articles if you want to do some research on this, but here's where I think God is going and telling us this. I believe with all my heart that Jesus says we're going to go to the Gentiles, and the disciples were not ready for that yet. They were like, no. Hey, we're going to go to the Gentile country. No, we're not. 
So they get in a boat and promptly disobey him. That's what I believe is happening here. That after seeing his compassion for the crowd, and then Jesus says, we're going to go to the Gentiles, then they're like, I'm not ready for this. We're not ready for this. We're not ready to get, get that deep. I think they misunderstand the point of Jesus' power. And, and because they misunderstand what had happened when Jesus was showing compassion to the crowd, because they misunderstand who he is in his display of compassion, that will show itself in resistance to accept Jesus' commands. Jesus just showed his disciples that he has the power to deliver what only God could deliver to Israel in the wilderness, right? Jesus not only functions as the greater Moses, Jesus functions as the God who fed Israel in the wilderness. He, he not only divides the people and, and puts them in groups, Jesus is the one who multiplies the bread. It's like God giving the manna in the wilderness. Jesus says, not only am I a leader, but in fact, I am the God of Israel. And his disciples still don't get it. <clears throat> you will not see Jesus for who he is when your heart is hard towards his commands. You see what's going on here? You will miss who Jesus is. When Jesus, listen, this is 101 in Christianity. If we will not obey him, we will not know him. Now, I know not, it's, it's the other way around, too. If you know him, you will obey him. But if you refuse to obey him, you will not know him. Jesus, Jesus very clearly says, you love me if you obey me. How do you know that you love me? You obey me. You listen to my command. You do what I say. You understand my power and you submit to it. But thankfully, Jesus is patient with stubborn hearts. Is that good news to you? Jesus' disciples have stubborn hearts. And again, here's, a here's something that's problematic. Clearly, his disciples had a pretty radical level of unbelief, right? It's not until Mark chapter 8 where they actually Peter actually responds like, oh, you are the Christ, right? They have an issue until then. But Jesus doesn't shake the dust off with these boys, does he? He's patient. And so the next thing we see is Jesus' power and revelation. Verses 45 through 56, the disciples are rowing against resistance, right? Verse 46, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully because the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Jesus meant to pass by them. He comes walking on the water, right? He meant to pass by them. And this phrase, pass by them, throws us back into the Old Testament and a thing called a theophany. Let's say it together. Theophany. Now, a theophany is uh, something that we typically see as a manifestation of God in the Bible that is tangible to human senses. It's God revealing himself to people in a way that they can sort of understand. Like Jacob wrestling with the angel or Moses on the mountain when he says, I want to see your glory. And God says, well, I can only show you my back because if I show you my face, you're going to die. Joshua and the commander of the army of the Lord, all these things, a theophany of God revealing himself. Or Elijah on the mountain when he gets put in the cleft of the rock and he hears the still small voice. All these things are a theophany. Now Jesus is going to do this for them. Now he, he says, well, I know they've misunderstood me to this point. I'm going to up the ante and I'm going to show them what's really going on. So he comes to his disciples again on the sea and in trouble. We've seen this before, right? Pastor Brandon talked about this last week. Again, his disciples are on the sea 
and they're in trouble. But this time, instead of just being in the boat, Jesus starts walking on the water. Reminds me of Job chapter 9, verse 8, that God stretched out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. All the time spent with Jesus. And you would think that they would be like, oh, now we get it. But look at what their response is in verse 49. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, again, those poor guys, aren't they, aren't they just dumb? You would think they'd be like, oh, truly, this is the Son of Man. Instead, they're like, ah! it's a ghost. Jesus could have said, I am done with you guys. You are idiots. I'm walking away from this. Okay, I'm going to just walk right across the water and I'm going I'm to find 12 new guys. But here's what he says to them. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. That phrase there, it is I, is ego I me. It's in, in a different language, language, but the same as when God is revealing himself to Moses. And Moses says, who shall I tell them is sending me? And God says, I am. And so these dense disciples whom Jesus has commanded, and Jesus has clearly shown that he is God multiple, multiple times. He uses his power to reveal himself to them. He walks out on the water to them. They freak out, and Jesus' response is, you don't have to be afraid of me. No. I don't know if you know what a big deal that is. That in the Old Testament, Moses says, God, show me your glory. God says to Moses, I'll have to show you my back because if I show you my face, you're going to die. And Jesus, God himself, walks over the waves right up to his disciples. And when they see him and don't believe, his response is, don't be afraid. Jesus uses his power to comfort his people when they had reason to be afraid. In his compassion to his disciples who were the densest men alive seemingly at this time, who were with him all the time and saw what he was doing and still disobeyed him and still didn't understand. What should terrify God's enemies is meant to bring comfort to God's people. Jesus displays his power to bring courage, not fear. Do you get that? Believer, do you get that this morning? If you're in here this morning, you've trusted in Christ. You never again have to fear God from a judgment perspective. You revere him and you honor him, but we are told in 1 John that perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with judgment. But when we've trusted in Christ, we have a new relationship with God. And it's not one of terror. So when he reveals himself to us, when he says, do not be afraid, take heart, I am. 
We're not afraid of his power. We're comforted by it. The disciples' inability to make the connection of Jesus as I am caused them to fear him rather than take comfort in him. Look at verse 52. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And Mark ties it back to what Jesus did. Jesus had clearly shown them that, they, that Jesus was God. But they still didn't get it. Their hearts were, were hardened. And yet, and yet, Jesus showed great compassion with these men and revealed himself to them. Now, what does that say to us? We should take great hope that while it is true that Jesus has every right to judge us for our unbelief, Scripture tells us that, that we are alive today because God is patient, right? You, you understand that, right? You, you're, if you're in here this morning, you're alive and you're hearing the gospel, it's because God is patient with you because he is compassionate. And it's his desire to reveal himself to us that we can marvel at his power. And instead of trying to take comfort from him, we take comfort in him. I just want to share three thoughts as we close this morning. One, Jesus' power is not deterred by unbelief. John chapter 6, verse 37, I said it earlier, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never turn away. What does that mean for us? That means if you're in here this morning and you're a skeptic and you're like, I'm never going to believe, I would just ask you to honestly and earnestly seek Jesus. It means if you're in here this morning and you have a loved one whose heart is hard towards Christ and the things of God, do not cease to pray for them. Do not give up on them. Because God is in the business of taking dull, hard-hearted people and making them new. Amen? Amen. Don't give up. Second, Jesus' power is present in undeserved death and undeserved kindness. Jesus' power was present when he was multiplying those loaves and showing compassion on those people. Jesus' power was present when he was casting out demons and setting people free and healing them. But I want you to know that Jesus' power was just as present when John the Baptist was being beheaded. You understand? Do we get that? Jesus was not absent when John the Baptist was being beheaded. That was in his plan. And in fact, to display his glory. That one day, John the Baptist would get his head back and it would be glorified because his hope was not in saving his own life, but in relinquishing it for the gospel. You're, you might be in here this morning, you're like, my life is a wreck, it's a shambles, and it feels like I can't get God to do anything good for me. I want you to hear this and understand that even if the rest of your life was suffering, God's power is with you in Christ to endure for his glory.
It's there. And with that in mind, Jesus' power is always meant to bring his disciples from fear to courage. From fear to courage. You're here this morning and you know Jesus. You've trusted in him. You, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you know him in saving a relationship. The power of God in our lives to endure is meant to drive us from fear to taking heart in him. You know why? Because if you know Jesus, you will never face judgment. Do you know that? The power that Jesus will exhibit on the last day of all things, when he judges the righteous and the wicked, you could never stand before him on your own. But because you know Christ, you will stand before him and you may have cause to fear in your flesh. And God will look at you and he will say, take heart. Don't be afraid. Well done, good and faithful servant. And if you don't know him, let that be your motivation to seek him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your power. We thank you for your goodness exhibited to us in Christ. And we thank you for the revelation of who you are. Lord, we thank you for the examples of the denseness of your disciples. And we, we laugh, we joke, we make fun, but Lord, we know that we are infinitely more dense than that. Lord, we are fickle and hard-hearted. We are prone to wander. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that you are not just the God who saves, but you are the God who will go to the extent of walking out on the tempest-tossed sea to tell us, don't be afraid. Lord, we pray this morning that you might orient our hearts towards you to give us hope and to help us see that your power will keep us until that day where you bring us into eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.